Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to your word now um, and we ask that whatever state of mind, whatever uh, things are filling our minds at the moment, that you would draw us in to your word, that your word would uh, reveal and make things clear that perhaps weren't clear to us before, that you would help us to understand your ways, um, your grace, uh, what you call us to. Uh, would you help us to, to see Jesus and your glory, and would you draw us to trust him by the work of your spirit in us? We need your help, and we ask that you would do this uh, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this past week, I started reading uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Liam, uh, my son, and I was struck by the way that Lewis uh, takes various teachings of the gospel and of the Christian faith and helps you to enter into them more deeply through the vehicle of story and your imagination. So before this week, for example, I knew I could probably talk to you to some extent about you know, uh, sinful um, desire and temptation. But it's quite another thing when you read the chapter in Narnia where Edmund, who is one of these four children that ends up in this magical land of Narnia, is sitting with the witch in her sled and she asks him, son of Adam, are you hungry? And he says, yes, your majesty, Turkish delight. And then she makes the Turkish delight and he begins eating it. And Lewis tells us that as he eats the rich food, he feels more and more comfortable in her presence. And he eats it and he, and he wants more and more of it. And Lewis says he would have eaten Turkish delight until it killed him. And then he talks about how after eating, he had this terrible stomach ache and he felt sick, but he wanted more. Right? Like reading that chapter brought me into a deeper understanding of sin and desire and temptation. And even what I just gave you was a poor substitute in a sense for actually going and reading the chapter yourself and taking in every detail that Lewis gives us. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School just north of us in Deerfield, gave a talk on C.S. Lewis and imagination a few years ago. And on the importance of story and imagination, listen to what he says. We taste the truth when we indwell story or when story indwells us. C.S. Lewis wrote stories not so readers could escape, but so that they could experience reality. It's one thing, for example, to cognitively know the temperature. Like a few weeks ago when I think it was close to 11 degrees negative and with a wind chill of negative 20 or something like that. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to be able to imagine and feel what it's like when you breathe in that air and when you're, what your fingers and your toes feel like, even with gloves and boots on after you've been out in it for 10 minutes. Story and the imagination helps us to experience truth. And in a sense, this is what the whole Bible is doing, right? Because the whole Bible is seeking to draw us into the story of Jesus that we would taste and see and realize and experience who Christ is and live out of that story. 
And here in our parable this morning, Jesus tells us a story and we're meant to enter in and experience and taste God's patient care, what God desires. We're meant to see the sin in a sense that is this roadblock that stands in the way. And we're meant to know God's commitment to his people. So we're going to look at this, this passage, this parable. And just, just for clarity, in case, this, in case none of this made any sense as Jennifer was reading it to you, um, I want you to have the images right in your mind. So the vineyard owner is God. The vineyard is his people. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel, past and at the time of Jesus. The servants are the prophets. And I'll let you figure out who the son is. Uh, Okay, so Jesus tells a story about a vineyard owner, about a gardener, that we might know God's patient, gracious care of his people. Uh, This past Thursday night, Aaron and I watched a documentary on Amazon Prime called The Gardener. And it's about a man, a man named Frank Cabot, who uh, has a very famous garden up in Canada called the Four Winds. It's about two hours north of Quebec City off the St. Lawrence River. This is a garden that is 20 plus acres big, and it's considered by many to be one of, if not the most ambitious private gardens in North America. Aaron... um, described watching this documentary like being drawn into a magical fairyland. And let me tell you, I'm not the sort of person, if you don't know me at all, I'm not the sort of person that would normally sit down and watch an hour and a half documentary on gardening. But it was awesome. Like, you should go watch it this week. You should go, Amazon Prime. Everybody has it, I'm sure. Go watch The Gardener. One thing that I really appreciated and what stuck out to me was the great intentionality that Frank Cabot had in investing and building and growing and caring for his garden. Uh, The garden was put together over decades, really. And as the documentary does this great job of showing you the various influences from where Frank got the ideas to do various parts of the garden, how he went into building it, even in a sense what he wanted you to feel when you were walking through this garden. And the documentary takes you through and it's almost kind of like you're walking through this garden and you're hearing Frank tell you about it. And so you go through, you know, these different uh, meadows and you're seeing these streams and there are these Nepalese rope bridges that you walk across and below you are these deep, beautiful ravines. There's this Japanese garden with this thing that I learned about, a contemplation pavilion which you can imagine kind of like a Japanese-style structured house, but this thing is a building which is put together without any nails. They harvest this wood specifically for it, and it has to be aged, which takes a number of years. And then it takes a number of years for this thing to be put together. And you see each part of this garden, this patient love, care, and joy that Frank had. And you really see his life poured out into this thing. I want you to look at the text that was just read. In fact, I don't want you to look at it. I want you to 
look off into the sanctuary or close your eyes and I want you to listen as I describe these different pieces of this vineyard to slow down and take in God, the Lord of the vineyard and what he has done. God plants this vineyard. You can imagine hands going into soil, maybe with a trowel and putting this plant in and then covering it back over and patting it slightly. He protects it with a fence. It goes up board by board around this vineyard. He digs and there's a wine press so that when the fruit come, comes, it can, it can be put to use, it can be harvested and, and turned into beautiful wine. He builds a tower, stone by stone by stone. These are lavish provisions. Like this vineyard is a souped up vineyard. This vineyard has everything that it needs to produce beautiful fruit. And if you look throughout the passage, that's the exact thing that God wants. He wants fruit. He wants his vineyard to be fruitful. Now this image of, of a vineyard and a gardener, this isn't just something Jesus has made up. Um, Jesus is grabbing hold of a repeated image in the Old Testament found in various places where Israel is pictured like a vineyard and God like this gardener architect of the vineyard. Listen to these words and again imagine this. This is from Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet speaks of, speaking for God says, my beloved had a vineyard. On a very fertile hill, he dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Right, the imagery, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Jesus' parable, it's not a one-to-one -one symbolic representation of you know, specific things, but you're meant to see and picture the vineyard owner, the gardener, and in a sense, picture all the things that God has done from the Exodus up to the time of Jesus. In Psalm 80, verse eight, it speaks using the same imagery of how God takes Israel, his vine, in the Exodus, and he plants it in the promised land. So take in all the bits of the Old Testament that might be coming to mind. So you might think of God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. He gives them military victory. He clears out the land for them and he brings them in. He gives them his law that they might know what is good and that they might walk in it. He gives them, right, the sacrificial system to deal with their sin as well as the opportunity to come and draw near to him that they might fellowship with him and they might eat in his presence. He gives them the priests and all the specific instructions of how to do this the right way. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the temple. The question that Isaiah asks is, what more could he do for his vineyard? And why does he do it? because he wants fruit. He wants his people to be this beautiful, fruitful vineyard that love and obey him, that do justice and love their neighbors, that live and flourish under his good and gracious rule. And again, the whole Old Testament story, not just for their sakes, but so that through them, the whole world would come to know the one true God, that they would see the beauty of his vineyard and that they would come to know God 
God desires his people's fruitfulness, which is why he sends his servants, the prophets. The prophets who call Israel repeatedly, come back, repent, turn, turn back to God, draw near to him. Live under his good rule. Verse 34, Jesus tells us, when the season for fruit drew near, the vineyard owner, God, sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And even when the leaders of Israel respond by beating, by killing, by stoning God's prophets, verse 35, what does God do? He sends more. More, Jesus says, more than the first, verse 36. He keeps sending the the servants, the prophets to Israel saying, turn, repent, turn. Why? Because he wants fruit. He wants his fruit from his vineyard. And finally, he sends his son, which if you think about it, right, that's, that's like the vineyard owner going himself. Right, maybe they didn't listen to the servants. Okay, I, now I'm not just gonna send someone my name. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send my very flesh and blood. I'm gonna send my likeness, my image. I'm gonna send my son. Surely they will give fruit and show deference to my son. Right, take in all that God has done for his people. How incredibly gracious, how incredibly patient Let me just pause and ask a question. Like, let's bring this down to to our lives. Are you like me where it's easy to forget this? So you look at life, maybe in a particular day or week or season, and you just feel like you don't have enough to get through. Like, I have not been resourced to follow Jesus in this season. I have not been given enough. I can't do this. Right? This imagery is meant to bring us in to this story, the long history of God, his patient, gracious care, to take these images in and begin to, in a sense, reevaluate our lives, reassess, and to start to see and even imagine the ways in which God has supplied us, in the ways he's given us his scriptures, in the ways he's given us perhaps friends, spiritual leaders, pastors, the church, various gifts that he's given us to supply us because he desires our fruitfulness. We not only see God's patient care, his loving care, we also see the sin which would stand in the way of bearing fruit and God's people being fruitful. Verse 38 We see the response of the tenants, of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Obviously, they don't repent. And really, this goes all the way back to the beginning of Matthew because in chapter three, it might have sounded a little bit harsh at the time with John the Baptist, But he's trying to wake people up. And so he says to the religious leaders in chapter three, these words, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
And it's no secret what the fruit is either, the fruit which is born out of real repentance. It's what we see throughout Matthew following Jesus. It's those who learn the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's those who, who are participating in the mission of Jesus in chapter 10. And to those who take the gospel of Jesus, Jesus' word, deep into the center of their lives and their being, and they are like that fourth soil that really listen to him, and they produce fruit. It's like those who are part of this community following Jesus on the way to the cross. So the religious leaders obviously don't do that, right? But why? Why don't they repent? Why don't they turn to God? And I think the text actually tells us, it shows us, verse 38, right? They say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. What's the sin that stands in the way of real repentance and bearing fruit? It's control. They want to maintain control. They don't want to be tenants of God's vineyard. They want to be the owners of the vineyard. They want control. They want power. They want to be in charge. They have these positions of power in a sense, and they like it. They love being in charge. They love the power and the influence and the comforts and all that comes from that place. And here, right, opting for control rather than repentant faith and following Jesus. That's not an Israelite thing. It's not a religious leader thing. That's a human thing. That's in us, right? It's in all of us who come after Adam and Eve who in the garden of God didn't want to live under God's good loving rule but instead in the garden of God reached up to control, to become their own God, to be the ones in charge. And you see, right, if you repent and if you follow Jesus, it means that his word and his gospel and his vision for your life is what actually counts. So Jesus comes to these religious leaders and he challenges how they think. And he challenges their identity. And he challenges their assumptions. And he challenges how they live and how they lead others. He's just been in the temple in chapter 21 and he comes into the temple like he owns the place and he challenges the way that they are running the most central, important symbols in their shared life, faith, and nation. He comes right to the heart of their life and he challenges them. And the words of Jesus that we read last week in Matthew 16, verse 25, are so relevant. Here again, where Jesus said back in chapter 16, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the decision before them and before us even. We opt for control if we opt for trying to save our lives We'll lose it, or we can turn in repentant faith and give control to Jesus and thereby find life. 
And the stakes couldn't be higher, right? Because Jesus asks his listeners to this parable. He's drawn, he's drawn the crowd and whoever is responding in verse 40, he's drawn them into the story and he says, what do you think the vineyard owner is going to do with those who refused to give control, who refused to give fruit? What's he going to do? And they say, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. And Jesus says later in the passage, anyone who stumbles over him is going to be broken to pieces and crushed. This is a severe, severe warning, but it's one that we have to hear because as they seek to protect and preserve their life, as they try to hold on to their control and their positions of power and influence, they are going to lose it. And this is a loss that's not just going to affect them, but it's going to affect all who are following them and who are following their teaching. Because Jesus is going to say in chapter 23, which we looked at a few weeks ago, he's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to weep over what is coming. And it's a historical reality. Because in AD 70, Rome is going to come and it's going to sack Jerusalem and it's going to destroy the temple. And I think this is a warning for us, not only individually, but I would say corporately also. The way that we do life together in the church, in this church, and I would say in the wider American church, the way leaders lead, is it according to the way of Jesus? Is it according to the way of the cross? Is it according to repentance and learning from Jesus? Or is it about control? Do we live as tenants, stewards of the vineyard, or do we seek to be the owners? If you lead in a spiritual capacity in any sense, you know, in, in this church or, you know, when we had Sunday school, you taught a Sunday school class or, you know, you're a community group leader or, you know, with your kids or, or, or with your spouse or your family, how do you relate to the people you lead? Do you lead like a tenant, like a steward? It's not yours. Or do you lead like you have control? Is it about control? Do we in this church, in the broader church, do we follow leaders and do we support leadership that is tenant leadership, cross-shaped leadership? Or do we go after leaders that are really about control because something in us feels like, oh, they always just say it how it is and they're going to keep me safe and they're going to protect me and they're going to protect my way of life. In every culture, in every time, the way of Jesus is always hard and it's always threatening because while in reality we have such little control over anything in our lives, it's so nice to believe in the illusion of our control rather than turn to Jesus, receive his word, and follow him. But here's the good news, and it is really good news God will have a fruitful vineyard. And that's what you see this passage where it ends. God is absolutely committed to his people's fruitfulness. So rejection cannot stop it. And death cannot stop it. And all we have to do is look at Jesus. Jesus who's going to be thrown out of the vineyard 
who's going to be killed. And Jesus says in verse 42, have you not read the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Though the leaders, the builders, are going to condemn the son and they're going to reject him in the death and resurrection of the son, this event, this becomes the cornerstone, the primary stone laid in God's work in history from which all other stones in God's building find its place and its function. This is what everything is going to be built on. And this reversal, the psalmist and Jesus in this passage, this reversal of taking the death and the humiliation and the rejection of Jesus and making it the central and most crucial piece of God's action in history, only the Lord could do such a thing. And this is marvelous. Do you see how utterly committed God is to the fruitfulness of his vineyard, of his people? Jesus says, this vineyard's gonna be fruitful. God's making a new people a people that's going to be made up of believing Israelites and believing Gentiles and people from all over the world who are going to bear fruit. One of the things that's really interesting uh, about Frank Cabot's garden, and many of the people in in this documentary commented on it, it's a very eclectic garden. It's a very diverse garden. There are all sorts of influences. You know, it's all these different parts from Frank's life and places he's gone and places he's visited and he's brought plants back from the Himalayas and and from Japan and all these different things and it's got English characters and French and all sorts of different influences coming into this garden and each part was specifically chosen and planted and cared for by Frank. And it's wonderful throughout the documentary to listen to him talk about his garden because he talks about it like they're people. And at one point he says, as you work with plants as a gardener, you relate to the plants. You become attached to them. You are pleased when they show their pleasure by blooming their heads off or doing the right thing or getting bigger. There's always this personal relationship. And I was watching that on Thursday night and I was just like, what an image. What an image of the way that the God of the Bible takes people like us, takes people from all over the world and he brings us into his vineyard and he plants us and he cares for us and he has such great commitment to our fruitfulness. And that's the real encouragement because while we really have such little control, why not give it up and follow Jesus? Follow this king and he's going to get fruit from our lives. He's gonna get fruit from this kind of church. I think the church that we want to be, this church that's being made beautiful as she follows Jesus, as she listens to him, as she follows him in the way of the cross to love and serve the world around 